When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Dead Rock Stars with Mick Wall and Joel McIver. Welcome, everyone. Here we go. Once more, a fantastic episode of Dead Rock Stars. I'm here with my dear friend, Mick Wall. My name is Joel McIver, and today we are going to be talking about the long-lost Kurt Cobain, are we not? We are. We are. Shuffled off in 1994 in entirely tragic circumstances. Yeah, I'm not so sure if he shuffled off so much as mm, mm. blew up. Right. Nicely put. Listeners, this is going to be an interesting, but I, I imagine fairly depressing uh, podcast. No, no, we're not going to be depressed. We're no. not going to be... No. We look at the positivity, we stay upbeat, we look at the good we're things. We're going to give it a go. We look at the bad things. Right now, Nirvana. Okay, I'll just pitch right in. Uh, when Smells Like Teen Spirit blew up... Yeah. What was the phrase? I burst onto the scene, he said last time. When punk <laughs> exploded onto the scene. When grunge exploded onto the scene. Well, in, in Nirvana's case, uh, it would have been 1991 with the Nevermind album and the Smells Like Teen Spirit single, although they'd been around for a good few years before that. Mm. Uh, I was 20, so perfect kind of, you know, studenty, well, oh, ready for this. This is kind. interesting. So you were 20 when Nirvana right. exploded onto the exploded scene. Exploded onto the scene. <laughs> <laughs> so, so as a 20-year-old guy, yeah. when... At a time when grunge exploded onto, exploded the scene. onto the scene. Were you a grunge fan or, or were you one of those kind of metal heads that were like, there it's, you go. It's rubbish. What the hell is this, man? And isn't Metallica. They, they can't even play their instruments. <laughs> <laughs> no, these were decent musicians. They, look, I, I uh, was very much a Metallica and Slayer guy, as well as all the other stuff that I listened to that wasn't metal. So my, my brain was open. You know, it was a great time to be a young person into music, actually, the turn of the 80s to the 90s, because there was so much change going on, you know, as we'll come to. All right, so I, I remember sitting in, a, I think it was in Austria for some reason, I, I saw a video of Smells Like Teen Spirit. I didn't really think that much of it. I still don't think Smells Like Teen Spirit is that amazing a song. Nirvana did many, many better songs, if you ask me. Do they? Well, you Name one. A, your eyebrow is Name up. Name one. Territorial Pissings, On a Plane, Lithium, Rape Me, Penny Royalty. Nah. Oh, uh, you disagree? Rubbish. Which is your favourite Nirvana song? <laughs> Smells like Teen Spirit. Really? Nah, not really, but uh, it's certainly one of them. I think it's a fantastic song. I think Smells Like Teen Spirit, it's like saying Deep Purple had a lot better songs than Smoke on the Water. That may be true. Yeah. Nevertheless. Yes, okay. It's one of those. It's the all right now of the grunge scene. Right. It's the whole lot of love of the grunge scene. It's the anarchy in the UK of the grunge scene. Yeah. It's the. Is it the. Wait, I've got it. Is it the. Hit me one more time by Britney Spears? Of the grunge scene. <laughs> it is the. Her name is Rio. Uh, and she 
dances on the sand. Yeah, I loved used to love Duran Duran. All right, yes, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, well, that's, that's yeah. I, I, one, you like you loved Duran Duran. You didn't like Smells Like Teen Spirit. Well, no, I did. I thought it was all right. I was intrigued by this band, and then subsequently the grunge gates opened, exploded onto the that scene. Exploded, exploded onto, onto the scene. <laughs> Um, and Nirvana was suddenly all over the place in a way that was kind of interesting and intriguing. I listened to them on and off the next few years. They obviously didn't have a very long lifespan after that point, only three years, in fact. But what's more interesting to me than just the tale of Nirvana is the massive bands that followed in their wake, right? So Pearl Jam being the obvious big one, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, all those amazing bands, some of which are still going, some of which are not, many of whom met with you know tragic ends way before their time and no doubt we will talk about. All of them had uh, people that we'll be featuring in future episodes. Absolutely. Lane no. Staley, yeah. Chris Cornell. Yeah. In the case of Pearl Jam, they wouldn't exist at all if uh, Andy Ward from right. um, Mother Love Bone hadn't yeah. died. Yeah. Now, you were a renowned journo, the star of Krang magazine in 1999-192. It all started to change. The metal, the hair went away. Suddenly, you couldn't have a mullet anymore, Mick, which, which I know was tragic for you. Um, <laughs> did you buy yourself a plaid shirt? <laughs> I remember sitting in a... When I lived in L.A., I was involved in what was billed as the world's first video <laughs> magazine. Goddamn, some video, man. It's the future. It, it's a magazine, but it's also a video. It's wait. a video, but it's also a magazine. Dude, dude, wait. You don't read it like a magazine. You put it in your video player. And, dude, you don't look at it like a video, because you can read this shit, well, too. Dude, it's like the future just arrived. And you know what it was called? It was inspirationally titled Hard and Heavy. <clears throat> wait, wait, was it Hard it was hard un with a lightning bolt over the un. Hard un heavy. Guns un roses. Except they didn't have a lightning bolt over the un. <laughs> See, they missed the trick there completely. <laughs> so uh, we were, were you working on this mag then, Harden? I was the bleeding editor oh, yeah, in LA, being paid a load of money to yeah, produce yeah. this awful shite once a month. But <laughs> so we're in this we're in this conference room, very LA, in a lawyer's office, yeah. and uh, planning the next two or three episodes. And it was all it was all based in LA because that yeah. was the epicenter of rock and Dude, metal. LA man, LA man. Yeah, we're in LA. I mean, I remember filming segments with Phil Sousson from Aussie's band, of course, man, and um, the singer from White Lion, Mike Tramp, Mike, <laughs> Mike Tramp, Mike Dude. T. Ramp, and they were on Harley Davidsons. Yeah, man. Uh, uh, yeah, I just rolled in on my bike, and they came in together on their bikes. I had to go, hey, dudes. <laughs> Sweet ride! Was there any suggestion that the show should be moved from LA to Peterborough? Uh, briefly. For a little more authentic. Briefly, yeah, before yeah. we obviously shot him through the head. But here's what did happen. Um, <laughs> we were sitting in this uh, big conference room with, you know, incredibly attractive secretaries bringing, you know, coffee with a with a thin mm. skein of goat's udder. And, uh, <laughs> sounds like a band. Yeah, half caffeine, half not, please, with a twist sounds, of lemon and a skein of goat's sounds udder. Sounds like a Stone Temple Pilots album. And um, I remember one of the young guns, one of the guys we'd brought in, a young stringer, started we're t- planning this thing, and it's, uh, well, you know, Motley are going to be doing some stuff. You know, uh, yeah, hey, you know guns are on tour, you know. Yeah. Bon Jovi are coming. Um, and one of them said, you know, there's this whole scene emerging he didn't say that it was about to burst onto the sea. He was saying it was percolating. Oh, nice. And I said, where? where? You know, he went, oh, Seattle. And I think we literally all just laughed right. like hyenas. So what is the cultural significance of Seattle back then? What was it? Was it like Slough well, or Well, something? at the time, no, no, far from that. More like Islington or West Hampstead oh, or, right, right. you know, Nouveau Camden. That moment, though, when yeah. he said there's this whole... This was early 91, and Seattle was known primarily for Queensryche. And Hendrix. 
Hendrix before that, yeah, but at that time, Queensryche, they were big. They'd they just were a big band, their, weren't they? They had, the, they had two or three big arms in a row. Operation yeah. Mindcrime. Empire. Had been a, Empire was the follow-up in 1990, I think. Yeah, like that. They were huge. They were a great band. I like them. But that was it, really. You know, there's this scene percolating. It just sounded ridiculous, <laughs> you know. Had, uh, you know, Mudhoney and Tad and the Melvins made any impact on, on you before that? No, yeah. I hadn't even heard of them. They, right. they, these guys were making a big impact on the NME. Mm, yeah. I say big impact. I mean, you know, no more so than any other independent label releases. They mm, were considered, mm. you know, far out and uh, cool, and but they mm. didn't sell any records. There wasn't any video yeah. on MTV. Yeah. And within eight months of that conversation, Nirvana released their big breakthrough album, Nevermind. And... Um, Things definitely were about to change. People forget that actually as yeah. Nirvana were releasing Nevermind, Guns N' Roses, same month, released double albums simultaneously, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. Unbelievable records. I remember. Of, both of which sold over 7 million copies each in America. Beggars belief now, right? And then the Black Album by Metallica came out around the same time. August 91, that was the Black Album. But Nirvana were the ones that, you know, everybody predicted big things for the next Metallica album, the next Guns N' Roses album. Never mind a Nirvana outside of, you know, this percolating scene. No one knew who they were. No one was, even Nirvana's small band of staunch supporters were predicting that their album would go to number one in America, sell 10 million copies and change the course of music history. history. Dead rock stars. Too much fucking perspective. Right, now this took us all by surprise, didn't it, right? No no one saw this coming, which is unusual. Well, by the time you get to January 1992, when Nevermind goes to number one for Mm. the first time Mm. in America, they're actually replacing, I think, whatever the latest Michael Jackson album was. Yeah, yeah. The Guns N' Roses albums are still around, but no one's talking about them like they're talking about Nevermind. Mm. And suddenly this young guy who a year before had been trying to tip us off to what was going on was proved extraordinarily correct because you get the release of the first Pearl Jam album. Mm. You get the release, not of the first Soundgarden album, but the first big breakthrough Soundgarden album, yes. Bad Motor Finger. You get Alice in Chains about <laughs> to release their enormous breakthrough album. Mm, mm. And then in their slipstream, the Mud Honeys and the Tads. Mm, mm, mm. All the Riot Girl stuff. All on. the Riot Girl stuff. Mm. L7, you know, all this stuff starts to uh, explode onto the scene. It's funny, you know, as a a professional hack for many years now I always tend to write things like uh, yes there was this uh, explosion of alternative rock and grunge which led directly to uh, funk metal and rap metal in the form of corn, uh, which led to new metal and then of course into the you know the wider scene that we know and love today and it's also very easy from this point of view to draw the big picture which is what we love doing at the time however holy crap it was just this giant like tidal wave of differentness right that no one could really figure out yeah in terms of the funk thing you know that had come before mm, this is my sweet spot so let me take over if you don't mind you had living colour you should see Mick's face you had living colour sorry how, how, let me, the chili how, how old were you at the time oh it was you had the chili peppers you had living colour amazing bands right uh, you had 24-7 spies you had all this amazing funk metal stuff largely driven by a slap bass player in the band alright do you know I edit a magazine called Bass Guitar? The band that really brought it into fashion was Faith No More. Mm. And I interviewed Faith No More and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and King's X, who also brought 
a black rock funk dynamic. Awesome man. But it was the Chili Peppers, really, that were the radical act. Faith No More kind of bounced off them in the same way mm. that mm. Pearl Jam and Soundgarden bounced off Nirvana. Yeah. But, no, you're right. I mean, but, but I think the point is, is that it seemed, I remember thinking at the time, that the end of the 80s, early 90s, was going to be a really radical moment for rock music because it was allowing in this funk influence, mm. but also a lot more intelligence right. in the lyrics, a lot more smartness, fun. You know, the Chili Peppers with their videos and with their socks on Cox photographs, mm. it was so much more knowing mm. and evocative than mm. Motley Crue or holding up bottles of Jack Daniels. There you go. Which leads us neatly, does it not, onto the persona of Kurt Cobain, right, who wrote those amazing lyrics and personified and epitomised that sort of new, different kind of rock star. Well, yes. I mean, he certainly fitted in like that. I don't particularly think he was part of that lineage. Mm. I think Mm. he was coming from punk. Mm. I think, you know, Seattle before grunge Mm. and before Queensryche was and still remains to this day one of the heartland markets in America for heavy metal. Mm -hmm. It was one of the first places that Black Sabbath really broke through. Mm. And, of course, Cobain very early on characterised Nirvana as like the Beatles meets Black Sabbath, which I think is actually a very, very good analogy. Absolutely. Look at the melodies, right? You can't help singing and burrow into your brain proper earworms and yet it was pretty heavy dun, 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 dun. Right. Yeah, it's all there isn't yeah, it yeah yeah totally melodic you know pretty heavy that's a trio as well that have a serious amount of power or they, they became a trio for Nevermind now I like so many other people went back and discovered Bleach after Nevermind had come out and got big and uh, I like again like so many other people I just thought it didn't have the, the hooks and the kind of the general coolness well, it, a lot it, of people it, disagree well, I don't know. I, I wouldn't disagree with yeah, you. Yeah. Bleach became a hit posthumously because you got Nevermind. Now you want to buy another one. Yeah. There's Bleach. Yeah, yeah. I think also when they did the Unplugged album, that great version of About a Girl yeah. they did, that song was on Bleach. Yeah. So I think Bleach had a lot of great characteristics, but it didn't have Dave Grohl mm. and it didn't have Butch Vig. Mm. They brought the dynamics mm. that I think totally opened up the Nirvana sound. See, Kurt, at one point at least, I mean, he, he contradicted himself many times, but he said that he disliked the production of mm. Nevermind. He said it was like um, Boston or one of those. He likened it to a kind of pop rock band. I think he was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the only bit I would disagree with him on is I liked it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, yeah. he was right, but Butch Vig did what he was hired to do, which yeah. was take this raggle-taggle, punk, new wave, yeah. Seattle, yeah. it always rains indoors in Seattle, yeah. I want to kill myself, and actually turned it into commercial gold. Mm. I mean, mm. I don't think they sold out, as it were. No, I no, think no. they made a fantastic record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, OK, so... No, I was going to jump forward to in utro, but I will not, because we always fucking do this, or I always do this. Okay, cool. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Kurt then. Uh, He famously was public about the troubled background that he'd had. It very quickly went on the record and remains on the record now, not least because there are a couple of really good books about Nirvana. But he talked, did he not, in the spirit of the times, very openly to the papers, the enemy exactly, as you mentioned before, who espoused grunge from an early point, about the troubled life he'd had, his family background, the divorce of his parents when he was nine, the sort of hyperactivity he'd suffered, the weird religious stuff. Here we go again with the tortured life of a genuine musical genius. I mean, yeah, he... he, um, sad. Sad, but but true. As I always come back to this point, sad on a personal level, yes. But look what we got at the end of it. I mean, that's not to say every poor person that 
ends up on the street is going to produce a nevermind. Yeah. Clearly, that's not the case. Right. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the fact is this this exceedingly talented, sensitive, artistic young man used this background, this mm. really difficult background where you know he's living at different people's houses. Mm. At one mm-hmm. point, he's living under a bridge. Yeah. You know, by that the was time- disputed, by the way. Well, it, it, mm. <laughs> the legend has grown. You know what I mean? People say, oh, he lived under a bridge. OK, well, you need to elucidate here because I don't James know what Buzz you mean. born of the Melvins said, no, that's bullshit. He never lived under a bridge. Well, no I mean, one believes a fucking word he says. So let's never mention him again, OK? <laughs> no, you have to mention the Melvins, of course, because they were such a massive influence on, on Nirvana. Well, they were. They were. How many of their songs would you name? Oh, many, many, none. <laughs> I've interviewed Buzz, actually. I still can't you yeah. know, name any of their songs. I'm yeah. sure they're very special. No, I don't mean to be dismissive of Buzz or the Melvins, yeah, but yeah. I, fuck it. You know, mm. He lived under a fucking bridge. Under a bridge? Fuck you, Buzz! You yes. didn't live under the bridge. I was there that I night. Did. Not you. Did you? No, I did. All right, look. So, so let, let me yeah. no, fucking let me finish. He lived under a fucking bridge and he wrote a song about it early on called Smells Like a Fucking Bridge. And then <laughs> Buzz, uh, not Buzz, <laughs> Butch Vig, Buzz as he was known, uh, <laughs> turned that into a pop song called Smells Like Teen Spirit. Kurt Cobain was a very troubled young man. So was David Bowie, you know. So was Prince. Mm. So was... James Hetfield. Sandy Denny. Well, James is still alive, you know. Oh, yeah, I see. They all did yeah. the previous ones. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you know, lots of great artists. John Lennon, Jim Morrison. Mm. You know, yeah, they led really troubled lives. That's mm-hmm. part mm-hmm. of why they go on to become yeah. artists. Mm, that's right. If they'd come from comfortable, well-adjusted families, mm. they would have gone on and worked in Silicon Valley and been zillionaires. Very good point. Well made, Mick. <laughs> <laughs> okay cool so this album came about unexpectedly really they'd been signed to Sub Pop right they'd been signed to Sub Pop and the usual suspects had become interested mm. They, John Peel did a session the mm. NME wrote about them but the significance of Kurt Cobain's life isn't about that period. It's about what happens after the success. How he reacted to it, yeah. How he reacted to it, how the world reacted to it. And I think probably for the last time in living rock history memory, we actually had a new artist come along that affected a ground zero. Yeah, right. You know, so suddenly Motley Crue, Guns N' Roses, Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, mm-hmm. White Snake, mm-hmm. that entire echelon of huge rock artists yeah. from just before Nirvana suddenly are not only obsolete they look stupid they look silly they really did didn't they they really they like really did pouting um, preening cockerels of rock they did but my issue uh, with the Pearl Jams and the Sound Gardens yeah. is more to do with the fact that they you know, I think Kurt Cobain couldn't help be anything but himself. Mm. I, know, I know, I'm fully confident that he wanted to be a star, no matter what he said. Yeah. Of course he did. Mm. Mm. But Pearl Jam saw what was going on and did something about it. Soundgarden saw what was going on and did something about it. And and more, you know, kudos to them for doing yeah. so. Yeah. But Soundgarden on their previous albums, it sounded like Led Zeppelin. Mm. Jeff Ament, the bass player in Pearl Jam, was an Iron Maiden fanatic. Mm. Andrew uh, Wood yeah, uh, in yeah. Mother Love Bone loved Freddie Mercury mm, and Queen. Mm, you know, mm. these weren't grungy, gloomy, no. I hate myself, I want to die, Kurt Cobain disciples. Lane Staley were... had been in an early version of Alice in Chains, which was a glam band. Well, there you go. Mm, that's where you got their name from. So I think the grunge scene, as it became known, 
quickly became characterised with this very gloomy... Right, sort of emotionally uh, literate kind of thing, in a yeah. way that the, the Motley Crews had not been. Yeah. So, again, what I referred to this earlier, but, you know, you look at Kurt plunging his whole self into his lyrics in a very sort of confessional way. You know, you could successfully argue that that went into Pearl Jam and it went into Corn and it went in later into Slipknot and, and it became a thing for people to play very heavy, aggressive music but to put a sort of very sensitive, delicate uh, emotions into their music. And perhaps that hadn't really happened in metal. It had happened elsewhere. But perhaps it really hadn't happened in hard rock and metal before Kurt. Well, hard rock and metal had become very mannered by the time Nirvana come along. Mm, that's a good I point. mean, just stale sort of thing? Or? Formulaic. Yeah, yeah. It was much more about 15-year-old boys throwing the devil horns. Guns and Roses introduced sensitivity, you know, sweet child of mine. Mm-hmm. Think the, about you. It, it's not a coincidence that that album sold to far more people than just hard rock and heavy metal fans. But if you go back to Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and yeah. Black Sabbath and Thin Lizzy, Queen, all these bands had wonderful ballads and melodic tunes. Yeah. But it kind of got washed away because the 80s became about niche. The 80s, you know, Kerrang! magazine wouldn't have stood a chance in the 70s mm. because people wouldn't understand why you could only like Iron Maiden, but you mm. couldn't like Sparks yes. or Cockney Rebel. Right, you know? right. But Nirvana comes along, Kurt Cobain comes along. And I think what you were alluding to earlier is absolutely correct, which is the success and this whole thing about being a spokesman for a generation. Right, what a terrible thing to be saddled with. That had happened a lot in the 60s. Townsend, Dylan. Dylan was the big one. And then with punk Johnny Rotten. You know, a a lot of these guys had come before, but suddenly Kurt Cobain is, is another one. It appalls him, terrifies him, doesn't know what to do with it. And while he's still thinking about it, hooks up with the modern Yoko Ono, Courtney Love. Mm, and resorts to drugs significantly. Well, heroin was a big, big part of the Seattle scene, as it were. Yeah. I mean, we should talk about Seattle. Seattle, in case people don't know, very European. Mm. It's not California with the sunshine. It's not New York with the edge. Mm-hmm. It was very suburban, very poor, a lot of it. The climate, not great. Mm. More like Ireland, than yeah, California, right, right. raining all the time. Mm. And as I was saying to you earlier, in those days, there wasn't a very big live scene in mm. Seattle. So the weird part of that was that all these bands would rehearse and rehearse and rehearse, rather than most bands form, and as soon as they can play a song, they're doing a gig, you know. Mm, mm. These guys didn't really do many gigs, but boy, did they get good at their instruments. So you've suddenly yeah. got, you've got Kurt, who embodies this sort of punk spirit, but at a time when he's got one of the best drummers in the world in the band... And Soundgarden, brilliant musicians. Mm. Pearl Jam, that mm. 10 album. Yeah. If 10 had come out in 1972, they'd have been compared to Free or Led Zeppelin, yeah. you know. So it's this weird mixture of this punk spirit, as it were, but this real heavy metal pride in being able to play well. And it hit the spot, the popular spot, the commercial spot. People loved it in their millions. Although... You know, to this day, a lot of metal people feel very um, aggrieved. Conflicted. Oh, man. Right. So, yeah, as, again, as a 20-year-old thrash metal fan, when all this stuff came out in 91, 92, Metallica released the Black Album, which was not a thrash metal album. I was one of those kids. Oh, what's weird? What are they doing? Oh, no, it's not metal. It's not metal. You can't like this, all that part. Is that what you said about the Black Album? Pretty much. Really? Yeah, I, I still don't really play it, like, compared to the earlier stuff. It's t- so how did you go with Load? I hated Load. You must have, like, wanted to kill yourself. Well, I wouldn't go that far. Did you get I, I a desp- shotgun? I despised it. I thought there's one good song on load and one on reload, and then I just bought well, I've never played Was it. the good song on load fuel? Yeah. 
<laughs> you know me so well. <laughs> you know what you're saying about Seattle? Yeah. Duff McKagan's from Seattle. And he had to move down to LA, didn't he, to make it? Well, he was a punk. Yeah. And you couldn't get many gigs because there weren't many gigs. No. He was in 10 Minute Warning and yeah, various yeah. other small time bands. Yeah, yeah. So he wants to make it as a musician. He moves to LA, goes down the coast. <laughs> Talk about making it, yeah. Uh, but then, you know, in, in this country, you know, I'm, I'm not putting down any particular town, but say you happen to live in Doncaster. Oh, that's where I live, you bastard. Or uh, West Bromwich. No, I've got a second half there. <laughs> Actually, West, hey, Bromwich, hey. West Bromwich isn't a good example because of Robert Plant. Well, Ian, the producer, lives there. He's got a mansion there. Yeah. Well, see, now, there you go. Now, he's a talented guy. He obviously moved to London to make it. <laughs> and when that, when that didn't work out... <laughs> so what does it take when you're to handle the label spokesman for a generation? I think in the 60s yeah. it was a cross to be nailed to. Yeah. But everything was so new that perhaps there was a possibility of... Some kind of, you know, like look at the John Lennon, what he did with, with that whole mantle. He actually did try and take it somewhere in terms of world yeah. peace. I think Kurt Cobain went home, stuck a needle in his arm, and was like, "What world go away? World you know, shut your mouth! World shut your mouth!" Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was reading about this. He had all these stomach pains, which are classically a sort of a, a sort of lost child sort of thing. But they're also, you know, have you ever known anyone with Crohn's disease? Yeah. Oh my God, that is no joke. And I wonder whether something like he had something like that that was undiagnosed, took to the smack as a very powerful painkiller to get rid of all that, got hooked, and then his trajectory went down from there. And trying to deal with this all this pressure to be, you know, the leader of Nirvana, you can see it in in Utero, which I liked. Did you enjoy that record? It took me a long time to listen to it and know yeah, yeah. know know any what I was listening Get to. Get a reference, yeah. I remember reviewing that record mm. and being completely flummoxed. Right now, I mean of course, soon after it, mm. it all made sense to me. Yeah. But in some ways that was the real follow up to Bleach. Right. Yeah, um, okay, it's so lo-fi. You've got Steve Albini producing, right? Who basically Steve Albini comes in, presses record and retreats. Mm. Yeah, let's be honest. The Rick Rubin of Grudge. Well, Rick, yeah, but Rick Rubin actually does lay a yeah, sound yeah, and comes no up fairness. with something good. Yeah, you know? yeah. And no, I liked that album. I thought, okay, I get this now. Where Nevermind had been quite bright and shiny, you know, yeah. and in your face and lots of chart hits aiming to please everyone. Yeah. This one was not trying to please anyone. Uh, it but still themselves, sold, but themselves. Yeah, it still sold giant amounts of, of units, of course. Interesting. I mean, the, the riff to rape me yeah. was pretty much smells like teen spirit. All right, yeah, there was a lot of... Um, uh, except the real, you know, Kurt going, well, you know, I'll show you what I really meant. <laughs> yeah. But what a great song. Yeah, oh yeah, man. You know, and look at the rest of the band. You mentioned Grohl earlier. Jesus Christ, man. I mean, as we now know, 20 years later, the man is a force of nature. You know, he's, he's, he dominates every single th- thing he does in a brilliant way. Back then he was just the drummer. Did he, he didn't write any of the songs, did he? I think it was all Kurt. No, he didn't. Although um, towards the end of Kurt's life, Dave was writing songs. Yeah, uh, for a putative next album. Uh, I think just writing songs, really. And there, I think he was there was oh, the there Foo was uh, there, no no the Foo Fighters didn't exist until way after Kurt was yeah. dead. Mm. No no, just starting to write okay. songs, mm-hmm. simple mm-hmm. as that, really. Mm-hmm. Kurt talked about one or two in interviews that they were going to make. I think they did one as a B side or something. You know, it, it was right. just starting to the come in a nodding. little bit. So you're okay. Yeah, I think we should swap seats because you're always looking at the <laughs> producer. <laughs> Stop talking well, about the if the producer is. nods, that means it's okay. You can look at you and look at him; he's much better looking. Well, I don't. I, don't, well, I dispute that I, fact. I, no, no, I, I don't disagree. Put it out on the wire. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Dead Rock Stars with Mick Wall and Joel McIver. All right, cool. So uh, I read an interview with Michael Stipe not long ago of REM, of course, and he said that they were all set to start demoing the next Nirvana album to come out in whatever, 95. Uh, it was going to be an acoustic record with strings. Hmm. That may be incredibly common knowledge. It wasn't to me. And I'm trying to think, well, would that have worked? Would it have really happened? Would the record company have allowed it to happen? Would people have bought it? Would it have been the end of Nirvana? Where do you stand on this, Mick Wall? I say no to all those things. Mm. You only got to look at the success of the Unplugged album yeah, to see that anything Kurt Cobain did yeah. would have been seized upon loved, adored. Yeah. I mean, it might have been that the hardcore Alice in Chains fans and Soundgarden rockers may have uh, not enjoyed it as much, yeah. but I don't think it would have been the end of Nirvana. They it already might, had three it, pretty heavy albums out. And it might have been the making of them. I mean, sure. one of the things that you know, Metallica, for instance, have railed against over the years and, and paid the price for, mm. I think... Mm is trying to break the mould, mm. whether it's doing an orchestral album, doing St. Anger, where mm. they try for a more avant-garde kind of sound. Mm. You know, Nirvana did In Utero, and the critics just wet themselves with glee. Metallica do St. Anger, and to this day, they mm. still get kicked in the arse over mm. it because mm. they dared try to do something that was more interesting than what people were expecting. Metallica do something with Lou Reed, and it's, it stinks out the room as far as their fans are concerned. <laughs> you know, uh, Led Zeppelin, one of the reasons, arguably, they had a much bigger career than Black Sabbath or Deep Purple yeah. was that they changed each album. Yeah. You know, that third album was not what the record company wanted. Yeah. It was not what the fans wanted was actually the worst selling of all the Led Zeppelin albums, mm. although it did still sell extremely well, because it was mainly acoustic, because it was a little offbeat. But arguably, it's because they did those things that their career lasted longer, because yeah. it wasn't a case of ever-diminishing returns. I mean, mm. I, I love Iron Maiden, but I don't see anything particularly surprising about, yeah. about the albums they've made over the last 20 no, years or so. No, 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 no. They get better and better at what they do, arguably, yeah, yeah. but it's still the same thing. Right. 
and Nirvana just weren't of that mould. And Kurt Cobain loved acoustic music. He loved... Mm, uh, mm. I mean, you've only got to look at some of the choices on the Unplugged, yeah. you know, the, the Meat Puppets tracks. Yeah, uh, there's a Bowie track on there. Man Who Sold the World, About a Girl. Mm, you know, absolutely. And yeah. they, these were really beautiful versions. Yeah. Growl yeah. on brushes on some of it, you know. And actually, we should remember uh, Chris Novoselic as well. Yeah. I'm not sure what he achieved in Nirvana other than be the tall, funny bass player, you know, who threw his bass and yeah, hit him on the head at an MTV Awards <laughs> show, which is absolutely brilliant. He told me once when I interviewed him that... Um, he threw the bass in the air, got caught in the lighting rig, hung there for a few seconds while he sort of tried to... We lurched about, wondering if it was going to come down. It did come down. You know, these things weigh five kilos. and smacked him on the forehead. He's <laughs> literally he knocked him out. Killed. He could have got killed. And uh, so he staggered off with blood pissing out of his forehead, only to find Brian May offering him a glass of champagne backstage, which I just thought was a wonderful anecdote. Now, here's a question. Mm. When Kurt committed suicide, which yeah. we must talk about... Of course. That was the end of Nirvana. Mm. What if... Chris Novoselic had been killed by that bass guitar landing on his head. Mm. Would that have been the end of Nirvana? I would doubt it. I don't think he was the person people were looking at. They'd have probably just got Dave Ellison in. It wouldn't have been so. No, yeah, I, I know where you're going with that, but no, it wouldn't have been Ellison, obviously. It would have been someone like the bass player from Mud Honey, or it would have been Kathleen Hanna. Yeah, right? Kathleen you Hanna, know, good from yeah. Bikini Kill, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, or, or I tell you who it would have been. What's that amazing woman, Melissa Alfdemauer? Yeah. Incredible bass player, yeah. super cool uh, musician. Yeah. Someone like that, they would have just roared forward. And it's interesting to me, while we're talking about the other members of Nirvana, that Grohl flowered so incredibly into this sort of every man of rock. You know, he does everything, he achieves everything, the music's great. I wrote yeah. a book on the Foo Fighters, yeah. and you can't tell Grohl's story without telling Kurt's story to a yeah. degree. And to me, they were sort of yin and yang. They were different sides of the coin, where right. mm. Kurt really, really had huge difficulty in, in embracing pop stardom yeah. or being populist in any way. You know, he used to hate it, he said, when people turned up at their shows in Guns N' Roses T-shirts. Mm-hmm. It now, really, we'll, really... We'll talk about GNR, because they had a whole thing, It, it didn't really they? upset him. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Dave Grohl, as you say, every man, I mean, he, he's happy for anybody. He's, he's happy for mum and dad to turn up. Mm-hmm. In fact, his mum does turn up at a lot of his shows, oh, you know. Great. That's great. He's got this big smile. yeah. Kurt would smile, but yeah. no one remembers that, do they? Kurt was damaged. I guess that's what it is, right? You yeah. Know, Grohl was not. Talking of Guns N' Roses, I recently found out, or it's probably common noise to everyone else, that when Metallica, Guns N' Roses did that giant tour, must have been the biggest of, of that couple of years, with Faith No More in support, that originally Metallica wanted Nirvana to, mm. to open the show, mm. which is interesting to me because I would think pretty soon into that tour, Nirvana were as big as those other two bands, pretty much, right? And yet uh, Kurt didn't want to do it, and Lars, or if you wrote about it a few years later, surmised that it was because he didn't want to be on the same stage as Axl Rose, with whom he'd had a falling out of sorts. There's a brilliant story, which I'm sure you'll tell much better than me. Doesn't it go along the lines of they're walking down a backstage corridor or something? It's Kurt and Courtney and Axl. Do you know the story? It was actually at the MTV oh, Music Awards. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. Guns N' Roses and Nirvana were on the bill. And this actually happened after the Metallica and Guns N' Roses tour mm. had happened. Mm. And Axel had actually been one of the famous people that came out early on and talked about how much he liked yeah. Nirvana. Yeah, yeah. And it was Axel that dragged Slash 
to see Nirvana play at the Palace in yeah. LA. Yeah. Palace is like the um, Camden Academy Palace, or, right, or yeah, 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 it's yeah. a stand-up club. Yeah. And Slash was like, eh, whatever. Or Axel was like, they're amazing, you know. <laughs> yeah. And um, it was either at the Palace, I think it was at the Palace show, where Axel went up to Kurt and said to him, you know, I could have been you. Because Axel, of course, a supremely damaged individual yeah. from Buttsville, nowhere yeah. in America, like Kurt. What did he mean by "I could have been you"? I think, well, uh, <laughs> I could have been you. I could have been exactly like you in a band, exactly like you. Yeah, okay. We we actually have a great deal in common. Okay, right. that's what I think he was saying. Got it. You know, because by then he's Axel Rose. He's this mega star. <laughs> And he's saying to this kid who's still partially, uh, mostly unknown, he's saying, you know, you and me, we're like the same. Mm. We're the same. Mm -hmm. And Kurt was like, like, no, 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 I am not like (laughs) you. Because Guns N' Roses had done the one in a million song. Politically, they were They were were perceived as, or Axel was perceived as homophobic, Mm -hmm. as racist, Mm -hmm. as a bit of a redneck. Um, So, you know, Kurt took offence to that suggestion. Axel thought he was extending a wonderful compliment. Mm. But in the typical kind of these two (laughs) really dysfunctional, fucked up people, they both took it badly. And when Nirvana made it known that they'd rather cut off their right nut, Axel took it personally, mm. as he was right to do. Mm. Because Cobain would have toured with Metallica yeah. in drop of a hat. Yeah. Metallica were huge in Seattle. So finally then, towards the end of 92, you get the MTV Music Awards. Yeah. And Nirvana are on first, but they really are kind of like the opening act, yeah. even though they're big. Yeah. And they've got the big stage set and they've got the piano and as they're walking off, Kurt spits on the piano because, he, you know, in, in his mind, he knows it's Axel's piano. Where to Axel do November had, Rain. Turns yeah. out it was Elton John's oh, piano, Christ, yeah, yeah. who was also there. And anyway, they find out about this and there's this big thing. Oh, blah, blah, Dude, blah, blah. you spit blah. on the piano. In fact, from Seattle. Goddamn, man. I'm going to kick your ass. I'm going to kick your butt. So um, Guns N' Roses <laughs> do their thing. And then they come off. This is where you get your backstage walking yeah. down the corridor thing. Yeah, yeah. Axel goes past where Courtney and Kurt's dressing room is, and Courtney's actually holding, or Kurt rather, is holding their baby. Francis, yeah. Francis Bean. And as he walks past with his entourage of bodyguards and, and uh, you mm. know, yes mm. men, Courtney goes, Woo, Axel, Axel, you know, would you like to be godfather to our daughter? Just to fuck with him. Of course. Mm. And he comes over and he says to Kurt, Tell your bitch to shut her fucking mouth or I'm going to take you down to the pavement. Whoa. Whoa. And Kurt turns to Courtney and he goes, <laughs> Bitch, <laughs> shut your mouth. That's making Axel yeah, look, like look a like complete... a total Neanderthal. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Axel storms off, you know. Then Duff, our friend from mm, Seattle, mm. comes back with bodyguards and decides to go in and rough them up. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, and then there's a little bit of a, it's not really, it. It's it's what we would call handbags at 10 so paces. pushing and shoving. Yeah. Dude, I'm going to mess you up, man. Yeah. Nobody says that to my singer. Don't believe you spat on Elton's piano. Yeah, and it wasn't even Axel's piano. It was Elton's. <laughs> Duff uh, comes into the story a little Sir bit later. Elton. Dead rock stars, say hello to heaven. Right, so um, Kurt... Suffered some issues with uh, with heroin, I believe. Fleetwood, Mark. Beginning of 1994. Did, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me pull you up. <laughs> Kurt suffered some issue. He was a fucking junkie. He was a junkie. And had been for quite a few years. He was injecting opiates into his veins. and It's not recommended under the current NHS guidelines. No. He overdosed once on champagne and rohypnol. <laughs> and heroin. I shouldn't laugh, but that's like a... 
odd combination. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah date raped and tough. Yeah. But um, got yeah. over that. By the way, you say got over that. Yeah, you know, yeah. It came out that was actually the first suicide attempt. Oh. So it wasn't that he accidentally you know, take that out. There was a suicide. No, you stop telling him to take stuff out. I'm saying it to wind you up. No, you're not. You don't take, want to be sounding stupid. Take this out. Sound, make him sound stupid in just as I sound stupid, okay? All this. Get rid of it. Right. <laughs> well, you're not sitting there anymore. I'm sitting there with you, <laughs> There was that first suicide attempt. Courtney staged an intervention, I believe, after which Kurt agreed to enter rehab. He did subsequently go to rehab. However, he fled from rehab. Took a taxi from the rehab facility to the airport in LA. Got on a plane to Seattle, where he sat next to Duff McKagan. Duff subsequently reported that Kurt seemed on good form. I think this is something like April the 4th or April the 5th, 1994. He went back to their house, which was a Lake Wishka, I think, right? Or somewhere. Beautiful somewhere. house. Yeah, right, yeah. Courtney went mad, obviously, with worry. Hired a private investigator to find him. This did not happen. However, a chap showed up to install a security system at their house and saw Kurt's body in or around April the 5th, 6th, 7th, 1994. Uh, he had shot himself in the head with a shotgun and he had written a lengthy suicide note directed to his imaginary friend, Bodda. So this was all April 1994. I remember very clearly I was in Australia and uh, it went out on the wire. <laughs> you seem to have spent... Mm. You know when grunge was exploding onto the scene? First you were in Austria, mm. and then you are in Australia. Yeah. Did you at any point live in the UK? <laughs> Only countries that begin and end with... Ah. I was travelling to Australia doing the stupid post-student you know, student thing, not redoing really a thing. But I did... I remember very clearly hearing that, sitting in, I don't know, Melbourne, and I heard this, and I was like, really shocked. I was like, what the hell? I couldn't remember uh, the suicide of a prominent musician in my lifetime before that. I'm sure there were, but I can't think of any right now. I remember being horrified, genuinely shocked. And I watched the news reports of that vigil that took place where Courtney showed up, read parts of his letter and sort of swore at him in massive rage, as she was totally entitled to do. He'd left their two-year-old daughter without a father. And it was just horrible, man. And obviously that was the end of Nirvana. Um, and there was something of a sea change. I mean... God, you, you were in the business at the time, my friend. You know, you saw those bands that had followed in the wake of Nirvana get bigger and bigger, and, you know, their, their careers weren't affected. But that was it for Nirvana. And shocking, horrible, heroin-assisted death, and we seem to be covering these things a little bit, you know, as, as we work through this series, mate. People whose issues lead them to drugs and the drugs lead them to the end of their lives. Uh, have we talked about someone who commits suicide yet? Yeah, I don't think we have. We've, we've talked about people who who died uh, in various circumstances, but mm. not, not inflicted with a gun. Mm. He talked, to his credit, at length about the demons that he was facing. I think he, he, he lost all enjoyment in life. I think his words were, I can't stand to look my daughter in, in the face. Everything in him must have come to a peak at that moment. The drugs, the, the pains, the, the spokesman for a generation, you know, everything. And it didn't take long, as far as I recall, for the rumours to start flying. So several years later, Nick Broomfield did that Kurt and Courtney documentary. Previous to that, there had been uh, that singer El Duce of The Mentors who talked about, well, he out and out claimed that Courtney had... El Duce's in the Nick uh, Broomfield documentary, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he out and out claimed that Courtney had hired someone to kill Kurt. Mm. Now, I, I can't remember. I haven't really gone that deep into these conspiracy theories, but I imagine it's because why would she want to do that? Well, let's unpack it, as they say. Yes, mate. Why did Kurt kill himself? I don't think we can answer that. Yep. You know, lots of people are heroin addicts. They don't shoot themselves in the head. 
Lots of people come from broken homes, they don't shoot themselves in the head. Lots of people become insanely famous as musicians and they don't shoot themselves in the head. Yeah. All those things, some kind of contributory factor. Yeah. All of those things are some kind of contributory factor in writing a song like Rape Me. Sure. Or lithium. Heart-shaped box. Oh, many of them, really. Smells like teen spirit. Yeah. It's inseparable from yeah. who he was. I remember at the time, though, being most puzzled. This is at the time, not now. But at the time, I was most puzzled with the idea that, you know, this millionaire, 27-year-old guy who is the most famous rock pop musician yeah. in the world at this point, uh, he's the Jesus Christ of rock at this point. Yeah. You know, he's not just a star. He's a bigger star than Axel. He's the biggest star in music probably since John Lennon or that era. Yeah. And he's got a two-year-old daughter and he shoots himself in the head. It's his second suicide attempt in, within a few weeks. Mm. Why? I couldn't understand. I mean, despite what I've just said, I still couldn't understand why he would do that. Mm. And I remember writing a piece about it and I interviewed a private doctor here in London, a guy who uh, specialised in working with musicians over oh, the yeah. years. Mm -hmm. He'd worked with Keith Moon, he mm. worked with Greg Lake, he worked with many, many people. And he said to me, it doesn't make any difference how much money someone's got or success or fame. If you've got deep, deep depression yeah. or you have deep, deep mental issues... None of those things alleviate it. He said some of the most deeply disturbed people that I treat yes. are the most successful. Mm. So he said none of those things come into play. Whatever made him do it, it the money in that was not going to persuade him irrelevant. otherwise. Yeah. yeah. In terms of the conspiracies, it, again, it's very hard to unpack. I mean, El Ducci... You know, he should have been called El Duché because he's just a wanker. Mm. This awful guy who, who no one had heard of until yeah. he started claiming Courtney had paid him to kill Kurt. Mm. Now, uh, he claimed that someone else had been paid to kill. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Right. OK, well, why would she want Kurt killed? Mm. There was a detective that wrote a book about it as well, and he went deep into the reasons. Mm. The truth is, I don't have a strong feeling about this. I didn't read that book. A lot of this stuff is very exploitative. Yeah. A lot of this book is very sensationalist. Yeah. You know, whatever actually happened, I think the police would have seen if there were signs of murder. I think, right? You I would, mean, they were first mm. on the scene. You know, you can still see pictures online. Yeah. He's got a big box of hypodermic syringes and a yeah. packet of heroin there. Yeah. There are witnesses saying he went out looking to buy a shotgun in the days mm. and weeks leading up to mm. it. Mm. I don't think it's a surprise that he killed himself. I think it would yes. be more of a surprise to learn that Courtney yeah. had decided to uh, have him assassinated. Yeah. I, I don't think anybody was surprised that he would kill himself. They go, well, what? Doesn't really tie in with his personality or his lyrics. Clearly it did. I think uh, you've just nailed it there. We don't know, but we wonder why. You wonder why, you know. I'm sure you know people who've killed themselves. I certainly do. You wonder why. Sometimes it's not obvious. Sometimes the mental anguish is so great that it cannot be redeemed and, and you can't escape it. And there are people, I mean, you're saying that I'm, I'm thinking of a, a friend of mine, a dear woman, her younger brother in his 30s uh, hung himself from a bridge. Jeez. Now, he wasn't famous and he mm. wasn't rich mm -hmm. and he wasn't a junkie. He just had something mm. that he could not overcome. Yeah, and nothing else could stand against it, you know. And I think it clouds your vision when you go, yeah, but he was Kurt Cobain, yeah. man. Yeah, Our brain chemistry is not theirs, so we can't really competently say what no. or what, what was not happening there. 
All right, do we have anything else to say about Kurt before we move to the uh, five stars, which we traditionally award? Well, clearly we could talk about Kurt all day. It's an amazing but tragic story. I think it's interesting that Kurt Cobain sparked, you know, we joked about it when it just exploded onto the scene. Exploded onto the scene. Exploded onto the scene. Uh, that What's was shit name for music? That anyway, was, that came was, up with that That idea. was Kurt. And when grunge mm. died, mm. that was Kurt. Right. Because uh, not entirely Kurt but very much Kurt, because Nirvana were gone. Mm. No one really cared about the third or fourth Pearl Jam or Soundgarden album. Mm. Alice in Chains carried on doing some great stuff, but that vanished pretty quickly afterwards. And in this country, Oasis released their first album. (laughs) Yeah, and suddenly it was all feel-good stuff again. (laughs) Yeah. Liam Gallagher said of Kurt, he was a sad twat who couldn't handle the fame, although he didn't use the word twat. Liam Gallagher says a lot of things. I I think he was probably under the influence of something at the time. Yeah, I Mm. saw a clip of him doing uh, one of the festivals this summer. He was fucking awful. His voice has gone. I saw it. it. He's still wearing the same hoodie he was wearing 25 years ago. In your 20s, you can be a complete twat, Mm. and it's somewhat funny. (laughs) But in your 40s, it's somewhat sad. Time to move on, mate. Time to move on. Yeah. All right. Uh, star quality for Kurt. How many marks out of five? Stars out of five would you give him for his star quality? Seven. He was a star. Fucking hell, man. Those photo shoots, he loved it. Mm, absolutely. Mm. Of course he did. All those iconic pictures. Absolutely. The shades, the jumpers. Of course. Man he, was, he was the know, man. He was man, up for it. Yeah. He, he was as much of an icon in the 90s mm. as the Beatles were in the 60s. Mm. Yeah, yeah. His uh, influence as a songwriter, musician, perhaps a man who even took his own life. I'm going to say five. There was a lot of copycat suicides, you know, right after that. Also copycat music in his lifetime mm. and beyond. Oh, right, yeah. I'm thinking of, like, uh, Bush. Well, that, yeah, that, yeah, that that's that. a definite copy. But, I mean, I would say Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. You know, yeah. in, in the same way that Joe yeah. Strummer of The Clash was in a country rock band before mm. he saw the Sex Pistols. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're totally right. You, yeah, you've yeah. all got to start somewhere. All yeah. these bands did not become what they became when Soundgarden were releasing Louder Than Live or whatever it was called, that's you know? Yeah, yeah. Or when uh, Andrew mm. Wood was poncing around the stage like Freddie Mercury. They were great band mother, Love yeah. Bone, by the yeah. way. yeah. But nothing to do with grunge. Maybe grunge is really, you know, bands from a way lower level. I mean, Mudhoney is the example, isn't it? People always talk about Mudhoney, Dinosaur Jr. But no one talked about Mudhoney until Kurt Cobain came along. No, you're quite right. Well, which really says quite a lot about his influence then, as you just said. Yeah. Kurt's taste for excess. Interesting, isn't it? He didn't lap up the, the adulation of the audience, as far as we know. In terms of excess, yeah, man was a heroin addict. You know, so I'm going to say five. He's alleged to have said he wanted to develop a heroin addiction. Well, that there would fit go. in. I mean, he, 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 here's a guy that uh, had a collection of dolls with their heads snapped off. This was a disturbed, damaged young man who happened to be a great artist. And, um, it's brutal, isn't it, really? So, excess. I just think anybody that's sticking a needle in their arm and pushing heroin into their vein for many years, you know, yeah. for quite a few years... And yet has the opportunity not to be that person. Right. You know, excess five, got to be. Yeah, OK, mate. All right, then. Death has a career move. Now, this is a potentially cynical thing that we always talk about. But actually, it does make a bit of sense. He was a member of the, I hate this term, the 27 Club. Mm. You know, it does exist. Mm. Um, he died at that terribly difficult age in a person's life, especially mm. if you're the spokesman for a generation. Mm. He still talked about more and more and more. James Dean. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. He's one of those. I think 
unlike, say, Jim Morrison,、mm. who was so dissipated at the time of his death, it's、right. h- it's hard to argue that he'd have gone on to greater things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unlike Jimi Hendrix, who left behind enormous vaults worth of music, Kurt. Was neither of those. He doesn't appear to have left behind a great deal of music,、mm. but nevertheless, his legend is enshrined, isn't it, in this event、mm. where he kills himself because he was on paper at the pinnacle of、yeah. success, not just success, but beyond success, <laughs> mythology. Yeah. Yeah. He was a myth even while he was alive, and in death, of course, he's now one of the stars one in the, the sky. Absolutely, yes.、Yeah. All right. Okay, everyone. Well, thank you very much indeed for tuning in. Share and share the heck out of this podcast, please. We do value your opinion.、Uh, now, Mick, now you've got your reading glasses on. Could、yes. you、uh, let us know what's happening next time? Of course. Let me just adjust my crutches. Well, both Kurt and our next dead rock star、mm-hmm. featured a grim irony、oh. in their songs. Kurt swore he didn't have a gun. Yep. When clearly he did,、sure. uh, and ultimately our next artist was not flying high again.、Oh. Another grim irony: Kurt thought suicide was the solution. Our next dead rock star also has a connection with those words. Kurt managed just one more studio album than our next dead rock star: three against、mm, two. That doesn't really give it away. This might. Okay. Finally, Kurt's middle initial was D. D was also a signature solo piece for our next dead rock star. Oh! This has been yet another amazing production by Seven Digital, and we'll see you next week for another awesome episode of Dead Rock Stars. Thank you. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over one million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code Program for a special offer. That's Stamps.com code Program.